Welcome to That Anxiety Guy, Episode 17, Anxiety and Derealization. Everybody, Drew here, thatanxietyguy.com or facebook.com slash thatanxietyguy, or if you're a Twitter person like me, at thatanxietyguy on Twitter. Any way you'd like to reach out and communicate with me is fine with me. I always appreciate the feedback no matter what it is. So this is episode 17 of the podcast. It's actually part one of a two-part series that we're going to do on dissociative states. This week, we're going to talk about derealization. Next week, we're going to talk about depersonalization. I think it's worth spending two podcast episodes on this because the dissociative states, derealization, depersonalization, are probably the most common yet least discussed anxiety symptoms. They impact millions upon millions of people. They may be collectively the hardest anxiety symptoms to fully accept and not fear and to get past. And for that reason, I definitely think it's worth discussing them a little bit more than you usually find in a lot of other places. So let's get started. Let's talk about dissociation in general and what that means. Now, if you Google for dissociative states or dissociative disorders, I'm not going to lie, you're going to find some pretty scary stuff out there. But let's break it down because you don't have to freak out. Dissociative states are actually, there's a whole continuum of dissociative states. So let's start on the mildest possible side of the continuum. Have you ever been sitting maybe at your desk at work or at school or behind the wheel of your car? We've all done this. I know you have. And suddenly you sort of wake up out of a daydream and think, wait a minute, wasn't I just two miles down the road? Or you might think to yourself, was that last traffic signal green or red when I drove through it? We kind of zone out. Or maybe you're sitting with a friend and, and suddenly your friend has to nudge you and say, hey, are you still here? You know, you're, you're zoning out on me. Well, that sort of daydreaming state, that sort of zoning out, as we like to call it, happens to everybody. It's a normal part of being human. That is actually technically a dissociative state. It's just on the furthest, most mild, mild end of the continuum. So it happens to everybody, and that's not terribly scary, is it? Sometimes it's unusual. We're not sure how we did it, but it's certainly not scary. Now, it is true. On the far other end of the dissociation continuum is some pretty scary stuff and some stuff that's pretty serious. I mean, there are dissociative disorders that involved almost permanent states of dissociation. Sometimes those are associated with recreational drug use or underlying mental illness, and some of it is certainly disconcerting and scary to think about. However, what we're talking about today is really not on that end of the spectrum at all. In fact, it's closer to the milder end because we're talking about dissociative states as an anxiety symptom and as it relates to anxiety disorders like panic disorder or generalized anxiety disorder or panic disorder with agoraphobia. So we're talking about dissociative states as anxiety symptoms, and those are not associative disorders. They're not permanent. They don't indicate any sort of psychosis, uh, and we're going to touch on that for a second when we talk about derealization now, uh, but it does not indicate any severe mental illness. It really is no more than derealization, which is what the topic is today, really is no more than yet another anxiety symptom. Frightening, uncomfortable, annoying, avoidable, if at all possible, right? We, know, we don't want to feel that way. But again, it's, this, it's just another anxiety symptom, just the way a racing heart or dizziness or wobbly legs might be. So it's important to start from that framework, 
right? If you're going to go and Google, you're going to find some crazy, scary stuff out there. But that crazy, scary stuff does not apply to us. We're not talking about that today. So let's talk about derealization and what that's all about. It's really difficult to explain this because in the end, every human being has their own experience. You can never fully experience what another person experiences because we're not in their heads. They're not in our heads. So we experience the world through our five senses. We see, we hear, we touch, we smell, right? Whatever else we taste. And that experience, the taste of a ice cream cone to you, we think we agree. I mean, if you tell somebody, I just had a chocolate ice cream cone, most people sort of will know what you're talking about. But we can never be 100% sure, can we? So the way I experience a chocolate ice cream cone may actually be slightly different than your experience with it. it. That's possible. I mean, I think we can all sort of agree. So you wouldn't question what a chocolate ice cream cone is. But in the end, our experience truly is our own. And the best we could do is to sort of get a consensus. We all agree that there's a tree over there. There's a car over there. There's a shopping mall over there. This is what we know as reality. So when you get into a state of derealization, the technical explanation for that is a disassociation, just like it says dissociation, right, is a disassociation or a detachment from reality. Now, that sounds kind of scary because a break from reality is one of the things that constitutes a psychotic disorder or a psychosis. Um, so it's not a break with reality. A break with reality means that you no longer have the ability to understand the difference between what's real and what's not. So this is why somebody who is suffering from a psychosis, something terrible like schizophrenia, may believe that they are the president of the United States or the Pope or professional baseball player or whatever happens to be, and they actually believe that because they do not understand the difference between reality and what's not real. So what we're talking about is not a break with reality or a psychotic state. We're talking about a dissociation, a detachment, or a little bit of a disconnection from reality. It's actually a break in our ability to perceive what we think is real in our environment. So it's not so much a break with reality or a disconnection from reality as it is a disconnection with our surroundings in our environment. And that may include our physical surroundings and also other people in our environment. All right, so derealization, the best way that I hear people describe it and the way I would describe it, because this was a huge symptom for me, tremendous symptom for me, and it was the most difficult one for me to deal with. People would often say that when they get into that state, it seems like they're experiencing the world through a, maybe a, a, a pane of glass or they're watching it in a movie. Like it's not real. They know it's real, but it doesn't seem real anymore. Uh, the person who may be two feet away from you having a, a conversation with you, you know that person is there. You can hear them. You're watching them speak, but it just doesn't seem real or it seem, doesn't seem right anymore. It seems just, just a half step off, disconnected somehow. Um, again, since our experience, the way we experience the world through our senses is so individual, it's a very difficult thing to explain concretely. If you ever experienced it, then you, you know what I'm talking about. If you have not experienced it, then you probably have no idea what I'm talking about. Nonetheless, this is the way we hear it described most commonly. Like you're viewing a movie, it's not real, or you're viewing the world through a pane of glass that you can't get through or that things just don't seem real to you anymore. And it's extremely disconcerting, it's extremely upsetting, uh, it's disorienting, and honestly, it's very frightening. But here is the way I like to, I, and this is not something that I have scientific proof, for, proof of, but this is the way I started to think about derealization. When we experience the world through our five senses, there is a tremendous amount of information being processed all the time, 24 seven. 
right? If we are awake and we are seeing and smelling and hearing and tasting and touching, there's a tremendous amount of sensory input flowing into our brains all the time from multiple channels. And if we had to consciously process that input all the time, we would never get anything done. It's in the same way we're lucky that we don't have to think about breathing or we don't have to think about our heart beating. That stuff just happens automatically. Well, I believe that probably 90, 95 or 99% of the way we process our sensory input kind of happens in the background. We don't have to think about it. It's not something we consciously work on. It just, it just gets taken care of for us. We selectively pick out the things that we know to be most important. We sort of ignore the things that we know are not important. And we're able to make choices and engage in behaviors that we choose to behave, choose to engage in. We do things we want to do because we don't have to worry about processing that input all the time. Imagine having to walk around the world and constantly saying, there's a dog, there's a car, there's a tree, there's the sky, there's a cloud. You would be, we wouldn't be able to function. So most of our sensory input, I think, is processed by our brains almost, I'm not going to say subconsciously, but automatically without us thinking about it. I think, I'm pretty sure, at least it seems like common sense to me, when we get into a derealized state, suddenly that sensory processing Right? The, in, the processing of the information coming in through our eyes or our ears or our, or our skin, that stops happening in the background and a big chunk of it comes, bam, right up to the front. Like suddenly now we have to think about that. So while you may go out through, throughout your day and you are taking the world in through your eyes, you are attaching no particular significance and you're making no judgment on what you see. You just take it for granted, your brain processes it, and you navigate through the world based on what your brain tells you to do. But when that processing starts to come to the foreground and you start to think about it, suddenly the perspective is very different, right? Extremely different. And I think that may be what's going on. And I could be completely wrong about that because, again, I have nothing to back that up. But more importantly, whether I'm right or wrong about that, it offered me a reasonable, logical framework to put this in where it started to make sense. Like, okay, that I don't know if that's what's going on but it sure seems like that's what's going on. And if I think about it that way, the mystery in it begins to lessen, right? So we don't really know what's going on in a dissociative state. We really don't know what necessarily causes it. Uh, and we certainly don't have any direct intervention to knock us out of those states. And that's part of what makes it so scary. You know, is it chemical? Absolutely. Well, you know what? In the end, everything is chemical. When you laugh, it's chemical. When you cry, it's chemical. When you go to sleep, it's chemical. In the end, you know, our thoughts and feelings and everything really are, and this is a hot debate, I'm not saying we're only chemicals, but that is how our brain creates those things, right? So which comes first, the chemistry or the emotion or the thought or the soul, that's open to debate. But in the end, we are biochemical creatures, and that's how our bodies work. So yeah, there's certainly chemistry at play. We just don't know what it is. Nonetheless, I think when I started to put it into that logical framework, it helped me a little bit. Now, let's talk about I'll use my own experience and, and uh, what I would do. So people ask all the time, well, this is the most terrifying thing to me. And it was for me, too, uh, because I think the most common fear is that you're somehow going crazy or this is going to last forever or you're, you're actually going to be psychotic. You're going to wind up in a mental institution. Uh, you're, for me, it felt like sort of I was disintegrating or slipping away from reality. It was, it was very uncomfortable, very upsetting and very terrifying. Uh, and people say, well, what do I do when it happens? Because it's so scary. Well, first, let's talk about two things. Why is it so scary? And why is it the hardest thing to accept? I, I think it's a lot harder to accept and relax into those symptoms than it is to accept and relax into the racing heart. 
or, or the wobbly legs or the blurry vision or the dizziness, those physical things, we can sort of intervene and help to calm down. Well, once adrenaline is in your bloodstream, it's going to do what it's going to do. But I know that if I breathe properly and if I sit quietly and if I relax, I won't add any more adrenaline. And when that goes away, my heart rate will go down and I'll begin to feel better. So I, I know this. But when you get into that state of derealization, you don't know that. There's really nothing you can do. Now, in my case, it used to happen to me a lot in the car. And my first reaction when it would happen and things would begin to feel very unreal to me is I would grip the steering wheel of the car like hot death. I mean, I would be clawing on that thing like there was no tomorrow. I would many times run my fingers along the little little ridges, the little bumps on the back of the steering wheel. I would count them. I would slowly run my fingers over them to feel the peaks and valleys. And what I was trying desperately to do is actually make sure that I was really holding the steering wheel. I wanted to somehow get back my grip on reality because it felt like it was going away. That only made it worse because I was fighting. I would be more afraid when that didn't help. I would get more comfortable. I would start to squirm more. My body language would go right downhill and things would just degrade from there. And it would often lead to a full-blown full blown panic attack. So what I started to do is I had to take the opposite approach. And first of all, I started thinking of derealization in a different framework that I was just talking about, right? Where, okay, this is just, my brain is now gonna sort of bring all this processing to the front. It's the same environment, I'm just processing it differently. So I would, I would use that framework, and that, that would help me a little bit to calm down. And then, honestly, I would have to just work on breathing, on not fighting it, not gripping that steering wheel, not trying to get back my grip on reality. And what I discovered is once I did that, I would have to keep repeating in my mind almost over and over that, yes, I'm very uncomfortable. However, I'm okay. I'm uncomfortable. I'm upset. This is disorienting. But, but I'm still really okay. I'm still really here, right? It's the same world that I've always been in. I'm, I'm interacting with it the same way. Just my brain is choosing to process it a little bit differently for a little while. And I would have to just really work hard on relaxing into that sensation and not fighting it, not squirming, not trying to break free of it. Because really and truly, we don't know how to break free of it. Right? There's, really, there's really no tried and true technique that's going to snap you out of that state. Uh, and what I found is that it didn't necessarily stop it from happening, at least at first. But when it would happen, it would last for shorter and shorter times. So the less I was afraid of the derealization, the shorter those episodes would become, and I stopped avoiding based on derealization. So it was easy for me to, to not worry about having a racing heart or feeling dizzy or wobbly legs or all that stuff. It was very hard for me to get out the door because I'd be worried about that derealization feeling and leading to panic from there. So once I began to relax into it and not be afraid of it, those those um, episodes became shorter and shorter in duration. And then ultimately, it stopped happening as much. Uh, and now it's still a common anxiety symptom for me. So if I really get to the point where my anxiety is way up, and sometimes that's triggered by being very angry or a very emotional state, that, that derealized state will kick right in. Bam, it still comes back. So the derealization is still one of the hardest symptoms for me to kind of deal with. But Again, like every other symptom that I talk about in the podcast, the key was to not to learn not to be afraid of it. Uh, one thing that I did do, and I'll pass this little trick along, and it's going to sound terrible because I was in the car and you're going to say, boy, that sounds a little dangerous, but I promise it really wasn't that bad. Instead of gripping the steering wheel like I was trying to rip it out of the car, what I would do is relax my hands on the steering wheel and just try and keep it as normal as possible. And then I would just move the steering wheel a little bit to the right, just enough so that the car would change direction ever so slightly. 
then I would put it back and go straight again. Then I'd maybe go to the left. And then I might do that maybe two or three times. I wasn't swerving around the road like a crazy person, just enough to change the direction of the car just a little bit. And honestly, that was my experiment. And I was able to say, well, it feels like I'm not connected anymore or like I'm not really here or that none of this is real. But look, I'm actually, I want the car to go right and I would make it go right. I want the car to go left. I would make it go left. If I would get to a traffic stop where I had to make a turn, I would consciously say, I want to go right and I would make that right turn. And it would remind me that even though it felt wrong, I was still fully in control. Sometimes I would actually say, all right, I'm going to, I would consciously say to myself, I'm changing the radio station. I would reach out and tune the radio to a different station to prove to myself that I was still actually in the environment and still able to control it and interact with it the way I always did. And that was a trick that really helped quite a bit. And I was able to apply that not only when I was in the car, but when it would happen in virtually almost any other situation. And it's important to sort of understand that, that it's not necessarily, I wasn't trying to distract myself from the derealization. I was actually testing it. So if I was sitting at my desk at work and started to feel it, I would say, okay, I'm going to move the keyboard of my computer six inches to the right. And I would do it. And there was my proof. Like, okay, the keyboard is six inches to the right, just like I said it would be. I was able to do that, so I'm fine. And again, not to sound like a broken record, but the less I feared it, the shorter the duration of the episodes, and then the further between the, the further it was between episodes until now, it really only happens to me if I'm in a very heightened state of anxiety, and even then, not all the time. So that's derealization. It is a dissociative state. It's just an dissociative state as an anxiety symptom. It's not a serious thing. It's not a disorder by itself. It's not psychosis. It's not permanent. And like every other anxiety symptom that we deal with, the key is to learn to accept it and to not fight it and not be afraid of it. Probably one of the harder ones to do that with because there's no concrete way to get over it. However, the same solution applies, the same strategy applies. And I think you'll find that if you go down that road, you will probably have the same success to one way or the other that I had in dealing with that particular symptom. Okay, I'm going to wrap it up here. We're almost getting to the 20 minute mark, which is a little longer than I like to go. I hope this has been helpful. Again, next week, we are going to talk about depersonalization, which is the other common dissociative state. If this has been helpful, let me know. Again, start at the website, thatanxietyguide.com. You can comment on all the episodes there. You can link over to my Twitter, my Facebook, whatever it happens to be, whatever you have to say. I want to hear it. Uh, again, tune in again next week. We'll talk about depersonalization. And um, again, if you're listening on iTunes, I ask this every week and I'm going to keep asking it. Take a second and give me a rating on the podcast. Four or five stars. Hopefully you think it's worth it. Uh, and if you would, maybe another 30 seconds to write a quick review on iTunes of the podcast. If you're getting something out of it, that's the best way to push us up on the rankings so that other people who maybe need the help can find it too. All right. Thanks again for stopping by. I will see you guys next. See you guys next time. And as I say at the end of every episode, keep moving forward because every step forward is a good step forward no matter how small it may be. I will see you guys next time.